0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You are very welcome to Lifeline. Katie Hannon with you until three o'clock today. Uh, I want to go straight over now to Helen, Helen Power. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Katie. How are you? I'm good, Helen. Helen, uh, you would be, to my mind, the very definition of an essential worker. We heard all about the essential workers uh, during COVID. Uh, just explain to people what you do, Helen. Um, well, I'm here in St. Joseph's Foundation. Um, we're a Section 39 organisation. And during the day, I'm a domestic supervisor. And then in the evenings, I'm a relief healthcare assistant. OK, and just to explain, we won't be going into sex because people mightn't be very mm-hmm. aware of the technicalities of this. But basically, yeah. there are people who are employed doing the kind of work you do, uh, who are employed directly by the HSC and they, they are public sector workers. And then there's a whole mm-hmm. other uh, swathe of workers like yourself and all your colleagues. And you work, do the same work, but for voluntary the voluntary and charity sector, basically, um, yeah. and you don't 100%. get you don't you don't get paid the same as the HSE directly employed people. No, we were public service up until two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. We were paid according to the HSE then, um, and then when the financial crisis happened, it was uh, taken off us. So and we haven't received it then. Yeah, so while uh, other people got their payback up to the old rates, you, you, you fell behind basically over those years. So again, just, just go back to me then. You, you're, 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 your job, and oh, sorry, and we should say to people, the reason I'm talking to you, Helen, is that, and it's something that I think a lot of people mightn't be aware of, but oh. that there is a strike. You, you are going on strike in eight days' time. Uh, we are. And this is an issue. Now, it's not for, it's not, it's not you're not, tar- you're, you're going you're targeting specific areas, specific um, sections, and we'll go over those in a minute so as not to frighten people that their carers no might be available to them uh, in eight days' time. But a significant number of people will be impacted by this. So explain uh, to me what yeah. you do right now, Helen. Um, well, what I do right now is, I suppose, here in day services, we've quite a large campus. So between myself and three other staff within my area here, we deliver a domestic cleaning service to the whole area here. Um, but up until COVID, I had eight service users, which also attended this unit on a training basis. Um, and after COVID, they didn't come back to me because they thought it was a health and safety risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's in particular, I think, over infection prevention and control. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, um, the service users are very important to me. It's a very important role within what I do every day. And now to just explain to me, what are who are your service users there? Our service users are adults with uh, learning difficulties, mild intellectual disabilities. We have severe to profound. We have people with autism, behaviour that challenges. Uh, we have Down syndrome. It's a very vast and varied uh, amount of service users, but they are absolutely amazing people to work with. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, so you do two jobs. You're, you're a cleaning supervisor uh, for, by, day. For, by day. but And by night, yeah. sometimes you also Sometimes step in. I work as a relief healthcare assistant. That was my attachment to, I suppose, deliver personal care um, and just be around the service users because they're what our organisation is all about. Um, we get more back from them than we could ever give to them. They appreciate you on a day-to-day basis. Um, they're amazing people to work with. Um, and but they obviously we know that that 
there is a recruitment problem for 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 uh, in this sector for you know trying to keep people like yourself on board because it's impossible, yeah. Because obviously, there's there's the HSE is offering better terms and conditions. One hundred percent. Like we can get people in the the gate here over the last couple of years, but then to retain them is next to impossible because they're offered better terms and conditions working for a Section 38 organisation. Um, I suppose I've previously been asked why I would move. So I'm with St. Joseph's Foundation just under 20 years mm-hmm. um, and I love my job. So why should I move? Or why don't the government just pay me what I'm entitled to be paid? And is there much of a difference between what you would get paid there and what you might be able to get for similar work if you were employed by the HSE? We're currently down 11.5% so we were down 10% up until the 1st of October and in the 1st of October the HSE got another 1.5% um, so that that's us down 11.5% which is a vast amount of money when you're talking about the cost of living and the everyday crisis we have now on how much food is going up, how much rent is going up you know, mm-hmm. everything is going up but the wages I'm just looking at the list of uh, employment areas that will be impacted by this strike and it's an indefinite mm-hmm. strike. It's a full-on strike and it's indefinite. It's not like a two-day. Yes, it is. No. Uh, no. So, so it's a big step for, for you and your colleagues, Helen. It's a big step, but you know what? We have to stand up and fight for what's right for us because we've gone, we've gone I suppose, unannounced over the last number of years um, and it's just about time now for the government you know, they're talking about the vulnerable society that we work in. The government is now leaving down these people and their families by having us out on an indefinite duration strike. We I'm don't want to hurt the families and we don't want to hurt the service users. But sure, what can we do? I'm just going to name a few of the areas that are going to be hit. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got the Ardeen, yeah. Cheshire, Ireland. Uh, we've got Ability West, uh, Cheshire, Ireland, Cheshire, Dublin, Cheshire Home, Newcastle West, Co-Action West Cork, Cove Hospital, uh, the Daughters of Charity, Child and Family Service, DePaul, Ireland, Don Bosco Care, Enable Ireland, um, Family Resource Centres, the Irish Wheelchair Association, Kerry Parents and Friends, St. Luke's Nursing Home, St. Joseph's Foundation, St. Catherine's Association, Trinity Community Care, CLG and Western Care Association. So these have mm-hmm. been picked as the areas that will not have. And will there be a skeleton staff? How are you managing it? It would be. Well, I'm part of the strike committee, so it will be very much a skeleton staff. Um, and, and that's very unfortunate because the service users are going to lose out on their social activities. They're, and, you know, they don't understand what's going on. Um, and it's that's just a pity that the government are leaving a go to this. Yeah, I, I, will you stay there, Helen? Because I have I uh, no somebody problem. who is depending on uh, the likes of yourself on the other line. John, John Grace. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Katie. Yeah, John, Thanks for having me. Listen, John, I, I, you would uh, depend on the Irish Wheelchair Association. Will you tell me tell me your situation there? Will you? I will indeed. Uh, they help uh, my staff. Help me to get up, help me to go to bed, they cook for me, do me cleaning, and they, and they and in the centre then we, we do a, a load of activities. And are uh, you completely, is, sorry John, so you live on your own, do you? Oh, I do, I do indeed, yes. And what, can I ask, was it an accident you had or how, how did you end uh, up needing birth. this help? Birth, since birth. Uh, I'm in the service, I'm in since 2007 since my mother broke her ankle. Mm-hmm. 
and I ended up in in the service in 2007. And since then, I I have uh, done so many things, and I am so grateful to all my staff here for uh, for he- he- uh, helping me. And how d- how dependent are you on on the people who are coming in to help you, John? Without 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 them, I wouldn't be able to get up on my own, go to bed on my own. I need to be hoisted. I have a ceiling hoist in the in the house. So they they hoist me into bed and get me washed, showered, and stuff as well. So I'm very 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 full on dependent dependent. Like, but there's people in the service that that have longer. Uh, more than me, even me, mm-hmm. and the, with, with, with this going on, and I and I'm in full support with of the staff here. They, they it's I I tweeted this uh, um, the other day. I said, "What could is get something in the book uh, for us as as uh, as uh, people with disabilities getting something in the budget, and then the staff having to go uh, on strike from the Irish Wheelchair Association." Section thirty nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, if they have to go on strike, then and and you're left, not yeah. enough money. And you know? we, and and so because I obviously Irish Wheelchair Association, the Irish Wheelchair Association, I should say, is one of the organisations that will be impacted by this strike. Oh. So, what are you are you worried about? What's going to happen then? Well, like, well you, I, I I wouldn't be human if if I wasn't a little bit. Uh, concerned, and, you know. Have you been and, Have you uh, been reassured uh, that you will have somebody to come in and, and help you get up and and do no, the basics? Well, they're, they're doing their best to get get something organised. I have no I have full faith that that's the case. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting to hear what's next. About how 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 we're going to be affected, like you know how badly this how uh, how how. Uh, Quite it will be in the in the house in the next few days, uh, from Tuesday week on, if if uh, if there's no one around, you know. Yeah, like you're literally worried that you won't be able to get out of bed if this doesn't happen. I well, I presume there's plenty like me all over the country that are are thinking the same thing. See, you know? this, this is what I'm thinking now. We're talking about people who are are managing very, 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 very vulnerable people, people in very vulnerable situations. And I, I'm just wondering why we haven't heard more about what arrangements are being put in place for the likes of yourself, John. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I will take each day as it comes myself mm-hmm. because I, I'm, I, I, um, I can't believe that they haven't been paid what they're entitled to for for 15 years like it's it doesn't make sense that they're being done out of what what uh, what they're entitled to the, the staff that are so good to us even the centre staff here in mm-hmm. the Irish Wheelchair Association we do different sports we do uh, arts and crafts like say music and drama and there's even so, all these uh, service users that come in here and they they looked when we were talking about it last week this is some of them looked physically shaken by they found it hard to comprehend what we were being told that there won't be any service until this is resolved 
you know. So that'll be a huge, even if you do, they do manage to find uh, somebody to come in and get you, you know, get you in and out of bed and washed and all of that, that this this your this social outlet that you have from the centre that that's definitely going to go. Yes, on. but uh, it's it's tough, like for for us as members, the, the, the to see the the government not acting that uh, 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 on giving the, giving the staff and carers of all these organisations what they're entitled to. And they have to take this action now to, to make sure they get what they're entitled to. So, so disp- despite how worried you are and you've, you're entitled to be, John, about what you know, how you're going to manage uh, after Tuesday week if this strike goes ahead, you fully support what they're doing. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I said I'd support it anyway necessary, and this is this is why I'm doing this with with you today. Um, they, they they need their they need what they're entitled to, and they need just to <laughs> cop on the government, like because uh, the way I put it is, is this: people are not going to vote for them if they don't do what's right. Uh, people with disabilities have a vote as well, and we're not going to go near them if if uh, if they don't do right by us. And right yeah. by the and right by the people that are are uh, looking after you. Uh, yes. Yeah, John. Will you hang on? I've got um, uh, somebody on the other line. Um, Silky, Silky. Good afternoon. Hi. How you doing? Good afternoon. Yeah, you work in this uh, sector as well, Silky. I am indeed. Yeah, for um, over twenty-one years now, I'm working um, in Western Care in in County Mayo as a social care assistant. Okay, and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? I'm um, I'm working with my colleagues in a day service uh, where we're supporting people with intellectual disabilities mm-hmm. um, and providing service to them, um, day-to-day life, integration and in community, finding work for people, um, making sure that they're building friendships, um, bringing them to appointments, and all things that we take for granted. Um, but that our um, service users cannot do themselves and need support with. Mm-hmm. So if our service wasn't here, it didn't exist, then um, people like, um, with intellectual disabilities like in our service wouldn't be able to have a normal and full life like you and I have. So you would, as you say, you've been, in this, you've been working in this area for a very long time. So you would have been yeah. there in the, the old days when you would have been paid yeah. the same as your colleagues yeah. in the HSC? And yes. then you saw it falling behind after the after the crash. Yeah, up until two thousand eight, we would have had pay parity mm-hmm. and also a link to the HSE. And every time the Section thirty eight would receive their increments and their pay increases, we would shortly after receive the same. And then in two thousand eight, um, we took the cut, um, like all the other public sectors, and we. Um, Agreed to take the cuts and uh, with the not with the promise that that will be reinstated once mm-hmm. the crisis is over. And now the crisis is somewhat over. Um, we have other crises going on, but that one in particular and the Section 38 receiving their increments again and their pay increases, and we don't. We've been told that we are private sector and we're not going to get the. Um, the increases, and I do not know how we are private sector when we're ninety nine percent funded by the HSE. Yeah, that's the 
Yeah, and as you say... That's the mind-boggling part. <laughs> it is. I mean, I do think there was some some uh, some progress made, if I put it that way, I think, um, bef- just before the, the pandemic. But you're still significantly behind what you would be on if you were working for the HSC. As the former speaker said, yeah, we're 11% behind now. And by 2025, it'd be roughly 15%. So just to, to um, I mean, I can I can spell it out what, what the difference is between our pay and the HSE. It is quite dramatic. Like, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a significant amount. And also my problem is that, as, as the former speaker said, we can't retain staff uh, or even um, recruit staff so that what if this isn't resolved. Silky, if you don't mind me inquiring, like what kind of salary would you be an entry salary for the kind of work you're doing? Uh, the entry salary an hour is um, in around um, the twenty eight thousand now. I think twenty seven. I think it's around that. Sorry, I don't have the exact figure in my head now. I should, but uh, I know that um, the section thirty eight is about five thousand euro ahead of us um, per uh, annually. Um, so that's what it so actually. That's what it actually would mean. It's uh, in around that, it would be five 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 thousand euro. Yeah, annually. Um, okay, so uh, in the difference for basic salary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and as you say, not a king's ransom salary to begin with there. Um, I think people will recognise that for the kind of work you do, because it's it's very skilled work, obviously, and you have to have a very particular personality Indeed. and... and, and yeah. uh, commitment I would say. Thick skin sometimes as well because I mean some of our services they don't, you know, there is behaviour, there are things we deal with on a day-to-day basis and um, that can be quite difficult and challenging um, and when you look into the and other services like someone say for instance an ID or legal which is a very important job we need that as well, earns 14 or 18 hours start off rate and our start off rate is just above minimum wage by about a euro 24 cents. I mean I think something wrong in the world when um, our most vulnerable people can't be looked after. Also the, the HSE will have to take over services because I mean if we can't retain or recruit staff who's going to look after people because services will have to close. So we can't support people either then. Um, and, and have you had you know. colleagues who have uh, moved on and t- take yes. up jobs in the HSC in the yes. last yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we ha- I know of several people and work directly with several people that have left for the HSE and, f- um, yeah, I mean, better pay, better better pensions. <laughs> we're not even looking right now for pensions. All we do is to pay priority and the linkage. That's what we're looking for, mainly. Um, and again, it's, ha- it's hard because people were saying that all oh, you strike and all you want is more money. It's not just about the money. It's really, we can't support our services or our clients if we don't have the staff to support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've got uh, one of your clients on, on another line. Uh, Derek, mm-hmm. Derek, good afternoon. Hello, yes. Um, Derek O'Brien here. I'm a service user with the name Ireland in Innes. Right. And I live with them residentially also and have done since 2009. So, um, so if this strike goes ahead, not alone will it affect the day service that I receive, but it also affects the care, my residential care as well. Because even though there'll be a skeleton, there will be, uh, they're getting a derogation in of staff to take my care of me and my colleague that live here in the house. But we won't be able to go anywhere or do things like that. You know, there won't be drivers to take us out places or anything. 
So it'll just be the essentials, really. You know? Yeah, and... uh that's just not good enough, Derek. You know, you've you have enough challenges uh, than to be dealing with that, that those kind of extras being taken away from you, if even if you can even call them extras. How much help? How much help do you need just to get you know get you through the day, Derek? Yourself. I need help with. Uh, I can't dress myself. I can't wash myself, or I can't cook my meals. So I need help with all that. I'm fully confined to a wheelchair. I only have the use of one hand, so um. So yeah, so you yeah. you need a lot of help, basically, and and uh, the staff here is in Abel Ireland, and in all section thirty or nine organisations need need they need to get what they're owed, and the government should really appreciate them more. It's it's really disheartening now, and I've written to Minister Rabbit. And I've written to the Minister for Friday and to the Minister of Public Expenditure and Reform, mm-hmm. each of which have said to me they'll get back. They haven't. So, so uh, you, you're, you're, you're fighting the good fight, Derek, um, and you're worried, obviously, of what's going to happen after Tuesday week. Yeah, I am indeed. Yes, yes, I am. I am. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, thanks for that, Derek. I've got another lot of calls coming in on this one. I want to try and get to a few more. Uh, Paul, good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Katie. How are you? I'm good. Um, so you've worked in this area as well. I've I've worked in Section Thirty Nine now for yeah a long number of years um, in County Wexford. Um, what What are you doing? Really what are you doing there, Paul? I, I, well. I, I work with people with intellectual disabilities um, in mostly residential settings. Right. Um, the, the issue for Section 39 is that the it, the parity of pay was taken away in 2008, but nobody told Section 39 um, that that was going to be the case when we were asked to take a reduction in pay the same as everybody else because of the um, the crash which we were more than happy to do. But no, But then what took place was the government then decided that we were all of a sudden, we were private sector, and there was no longer going to be parity of pay between us and um, that and the HSE. And as a result of that, um, and, and I've, seen, I've, I've seen the levels of staffing drop and drop and drop, um, to the point now where it's almost impossible to get staff. I mean, I know the company that I've worked for are on a constant recu- recruiting campaign, um, and recently, they actually kind of, they, they tried to equate our wages with the HSE, but that came from their direct funding, which would have an, asset, which would have an ongoing effect with, um, with, with, with services. So mm-hmm. services would then sort of um, become tighter and tighter and, and, and reduced to some extent. And that's sorry, I wanted to ask... trying to retain staff. Yeah, Paul, I was just wondering that, like, do the individual organisations set their own pay rates then within, uh, you know, what, what the, their overall budget well, that they get from government? Well, you see, nobody seems to know. That's the thing, is that kind of... Um, I, nobody knows how the, how, the, how the rates are paid. I'm, I'm a staff nurse. I, I should be paid the same rate as every staff nurse in the country. But I'm not because I work in Section 39. Mm-hmm. But that's like pl- paying a plumber in one company a, a rate to a, a different rate to a plumber in another company. 
And would you but be you tempted? Have all the same rate of pay. Would you be tempted, Paul, to move to a, a HSE job, a, a direct, uh, directly employed <laughs> um, job? If I if, if if I was a younger man, I I would most definitely um, for for all sorts of reasons in terms of pension protection, in terms of salary protection, in terms of conditions. I would do, and I and I and I have. I'm I'm towards the end of my career now, but I have encouraged younger people to leave Section 39 for that very reason. And I know that sounds dreadful, but like kind of when you see young people who can't get the mortgage on a house because they've no protection for the wages, they've no guarantee that they're going to get their next increment. You know, I saw people on the same wages for eight, nine, ten years. And no hope as, as, as house prices rose and rose. With no hope of getting a mortgage or meeting meeting the cost of the mortgage in terms of the price of the home for that very reason that they were on the same increment for eight, nine, ten years. And some people were on increments as low as level two and three. And that went on for eight, nine, ten years with no increase in pay, no increase in wages. Everything went up. Inflation went up. Cost of living went up. You know, there was a whole raft of things that took place in the, in the, in the interim. And people were still at that level of pay. Which is basically a pay cut then in that line. Um, Okay, yeah. I, I'm told I have to take a break. Uh, bear with me. Okay, Paul. that's fine, Katie. Thank you. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And I uh, just have a, a statement in from the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. The Department for Everything, really, I think we can say now is Roger Gorman's uh, department. Uh, they are also in charge of uh, these organisations that we are calling the Section 39 organisations. Uh, they say that the government is committed to resolving the issue and they say that in July, the Department and the Department of Health made a combined offer of a 5% pay funding increase uh, to these employer bodies. Then they go on to say, of course, that they are privately owned and operated. This is uh, the issue that uh, Helen and John and others were were raising there. And the terms and conditions of employment for staff in these organisations are ultimately between the employer and employees. And they encourage, they say, the unions and employers to return to the WRC as the Workplace Relations Commission process to avoid industrial action and the negative impacts this will have on the people and families using these services. Uh, Helen, uh, you've been listening to that. They say that uh, mm-hmm. they, they made a reasonable offer and you should go back to the uh, the Workplace Relations Commission. So they made an offer, Katie, of 5%, which we turned down, considering since 2008 we're down 10%. And now, as of the 1st of October, 1.5. And apparently, between the next five years, we could be down the bones of 20% before it actually finishes. So for a standard worker out there, that's not good news to hear. All we want is pay parity. Bring us back to the way it was in 2008. Give us what we deserve. Forget these talks. It's last minute, in my opinion. Too late. You've let us come to this. You've hurt the most vulnerable people within our society. You're neglected to look at the work that the healthcare um, that we do in a Section 39 organisation. Um, our job is be taxes to care. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in these jobs. So why should the government just forget that we even exist? We were good enough during COVID to bring our people with disabilities through COVID and through a pandemic, which most of us did 
at a very high level of putting ourselves under a huge amount of extra stress and duress, but it was because of the care of the clients. And that's what all this boils down to, the care of the clients. The clients have just spoken to you there. They want their staff to be looked after. The government needs to just sit up and listen, pay us what we're entitled to. I don't want to be going to the Workers' Rights Commission anymore. I don't want to be going to the Dáil anymore. I don't want to be marching outside the Dáil, as I've done for the restoration of pay and so on and so forth down through the years. Pay us what we're entitled to. Okay. If it was them, they get proper pay for what they're doing. So what's so different about us? There isn't any difference. Helen, thank you for that. And John, thank you. And Paul and all, all my other callers on that. Uh, we will obviously be keeping an eye on that because... As I say, that we know there's people in very vulnerable situations who will be very concerned about uh, how this is developing. Uh, but for now, we leave that there. We'll take another break. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Now, I think a lot of our minds uh, today are on what's happening in the Middle East and uh, some very distressing, to say the least, footage uh, on all over social media over the last couple of days uh, after that uh, Hamas attack on um, over the weekend. I want to go to Tel Aviv now and to Paula Faye. Paula, good afternoon. Hi, Katie. How are you? Paula, how are you? I think a lot of us, uh, our hearts go out to anyone who is uh, caught up in this. Uh, what's it like there today? Yeah, it's it's um, it's fairly quiet. Um, we live in Tel Aviv. We've lived here for like four years now. Um, I just really needed to get on uh, after listening to Mary Lou MacDonald and her rhetoric and how upsetting it is for me as an Irish citizen and for any human really that has some like has the gall to even say uh, you know people have been massacred in less than 48 hours there is now it's 800 people that are dead Israelis and it's rising you know it's over 2,200 people are injured there's over a hundred people kidnapped. You know, it's like for me, it's like we can talk about, you know, the politics of here. And yes, it's it's like very, very complicated situation. But there have people have been protesting here for 37 consecutive weeks against the government of what the plan is. This the people here do not deserve this. And for the international community in Sydney and in Canada, in Ireland, in Belfast, in New York, all over, we've seen it, have people chanting. It's absolutely disgusting. And I'm not, I'm not Jewish myself, I'm, I know I'm Catholic. But for, as a human being, I just think it's disgusting. Yeah, Paula, can I and I just and I, I'm I'm no spokesperson or a defender or anything for Sinn Féin, but I, I did listen to that interview as well. And I know that Mary Lou Macdonald did acknowledge that what Hamas did was not she did not stand over it or she did. She did condemn she it and said it would have to be she condemned came in with another. She came in with another like, oh, you know, it's it's but, it, this is there is a six year old kid. There's a video of a six year old kid that they've kidnapped. 
They brought them into Gaza. They were sitting around hitting them and taunting them. And he's like, where's my mother? In Hebrew, where's my mother? Where's my mother? And they're saying, you're a dirty Jew. You're a filthy Jew. Um, did we not hear about this before? There, There is no doubt. There is some horrific, horrific uh, videos uh, doing, you know, doing the rounds that have come out of there over the last couple of days. I, I'm just wondering what it must be like for somebody like yourself, Paula, who's literally in it, you know, not watching it on social media from behind, you know, the comfort of that. What is it like to actually you know, be in Tel Aviv today? You know, look, we've we've made our life here like for four years. We have our kids go to school here. They have their friends here, you know. How did you end up there, Paula? Do you mind me asking? So um, my husband's uh, dad is Israeli and uh, we came here for like a year thinking it was, you know, and then COVID hit and uh, we're here like four years later. Um, But, you know, it's like, you know, it's kind of become our life. We have like our kids go to school, you know, they have their friends. We have our work here and, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, you know, I, you know, we have many friends like that. We, We know some of the people that are missing. I, I saw that somewhere you know, where I was reading somewhere that there there isn't a, a family in Israel that doesn't know somebody who is missing, who's been killed or who has been called up to fight, that it's 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 affecting everybody very personally. It's, you know, as we know, Ireland is a small country. It's like the same here. Like, the, you know, look, take take the politics out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, please, and look at it as a, like a, you know, the Israelis are actually very, like, very uh, similar to Irish people. They love Ireland, you know, but when they see things like this, their heart breaks, you know? It's like, it's, you know, it's like, can I, can I give you a few examples of what has happened, you know? Like, if there's two women that they've kidnapped who are Holocaust survivors, they brought her, they brought one of the women who has dementia through Gaza on a golf cart, taunting her and throwing stuff at her. Now, you know, there is, the, there's 260 bodies found at the Peace Wave, where at 6.30, paragliders come in and they mow down everyone. It, it, before they mowed down some of the women, they raped and tortured them. Yeah, I'm. Again, I'm not questioning the the what you're saying. I'm not. I'm not uh, in any way, <laughs> obviously, not condoning or suggesting anything. I'm wondering, though, because there has been people saying, well, that that the Palestinian people were driven to desperate, desperate. Uh, okay, I'll, I and I'll. I'll for this, okay. There is no one in 2005. Israel moved out of Gaza. Yes, there is a problem in the West Bank, and I agree with the occupation there that I, I've, it's wrong. Absolutely, 100%. There's problems there, but that's controlled by the Palestinian Authority. It's nothing got to do with Gaza. They're but, two. They're two separate things. So you know. If 
like I, I know Paul for and example, I, I, a few days a few days before like you know the Gazans come in to or Palestinians come into Israel for work but we know that Paul and I again I am in no way anything I say should be taken to to uh, condone or give a reason for uh, what happened over the last couple of days but I think it has to be acknowledged as well that Gaza has been it's been called, uh, you know, the biggest open prison in the world. That there's very little but, freedom of movement but, uh, for, for Palestinians who, in that. In that. Yes, but, but who who made this? Who made that? There is there's a border with Egypt, and there's a border with Israel. Egypt does not let any people from Gaza out. But again, it's the whole whole rhetoric, like coming back about Israel. Can, can I just ask you, know, you though, I, I, yeah, I just wondering about like, the actual feeling of people like yourself who, you know, want to go about your, your lives in Tel Aviv today. Like, are you worried about more rockets coming in? Are you worried about? Yes, of course. It's always. It's always. We, I brought my kid out just for a quick walk around. Like but we st- we've stayed inside most of the time. But I'm just when it comes to like in in Israel or that each apartment, most of the new buildings now have like what's called a safe room, so you can go in. And you know the indiscriminate bombing that people that you know people talk about. That mm-hmm. you know, as, as much as people want to, it's 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 documented. People do a they do a knock knock. They ask, like in Gaza, that to move away. Yes, where can they go? But what are they going to open? You see what happened on Saturday. <laughs> like you know, it's it's such a complicated situation. It is, but at least let the people of Israel bury their loved ones, get their loved ones back before people start parading around and burning the Israeli flag. Okay. You know, it's... Okay. Okay, Paula, I can hear it's a very, very distressing, uh, distressing situation. Um, but thank you and thank you for getting in touch and just giving us a sense of what it feels like to be in Tel Aviv today in the middle of all of this. Okay, we'll take our break. Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. And I want to go to Father Joe MacDonald now. Good afternoon, Father Joe. Afternoon, Katie. How are you? I'm good. Um, Tell me, priests, priestless funerals, are they happening already? Uh, yeah, well, they probably are it, it, once there, there's no mass. Um, I mean, the concept is not something that we're happy about, needless to say, Katie. And, um, you know, the, the ultimate prayer from a Christian perspective is the mass. So the expectation would be, of course, to be a funeral mass uh, for the loved one. The problem is um, the, the declining number of priests, the age profile, the lack of vocations. That's the, that's the real difficulty. So we're trying to be, you know, imaginative, creative about about the future. 
Yeah, so I, do you know, I saw the the Association of Catholic Priests that you're involved with or a, sp- a spokesperson for, Joe, uh, that there's a thousand members. Is that right? I was surprised even that we had that many left. How many priests do we know have we in Ireland at this point? Well, just, just to clarify, Katie, I'm not in the mm. association, so um, I'm right. not a spokesperson. Nor am I a member, so just a, there's not a big deal. No, I mean I, I I know I know where they're coming from. Um, I wouldn't be able to give you figures like that. What what I would say to you about the diocese that I'm in here, the Dublin diocese. I mean, I think the average age is around 71, 72 years of age, and uh, the difficulty as well is, you know, even if we were get were to get a couple of guys into into formation, even, you know, this year, it, it, it takes a few years for them to come through, and uh, we don't have that. So so the, the challenge is then, um, and, and, a, and a positive aspect of this is the greater involvement in lay people. I mean, the, the Pope, our own Archbishop, would say the future of the Church is lay. But coming back to what you're specifically mm-hmm. asking about, it would be a challenge for people, uh, Katie, because... The expectation, certainly within the Irish Catholic situation, is that the loved one has a has a funeral mass, and we're going to find ourselves in situations where we'll probably offer the people a funeral service, um, and the service won't be mass as such. That could be conducted by one of the ordained deacons. We have a growing number of ordained deacons. Okay, so and, what, what, explain what is a deacon then. Well, a deacon, well, I, I hope I don't get into trouble for saying this. Years ago when I was in Maynooth, um, there was a young guy beside me in the lecture hall and he asked the old professor, what can a deacon do? And the professor, known for his uh, sort of wry sense of humour, he says the deacon can hatch, match and dispatch. Now, <laughs> that basically means do baptisms, do weddings and do funerals. That was his uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek way of saying it. So the Mary Deacon, I have one of them here uh, in Selbridge, uh, John, and um, I mean, he's a, he's a huge, he's a huge help. He can do baptisms. Uh, he can do a funeral where it's not mass. In other words, the food, you know, the reading, the music, uh, the, the prayers and so on. John can do all that as a Mary Deacon. Um, it's just and, you, you have uh, to be—you have to be an ordained priest for the transubstantiation bit of it. Is that—is that the uh, ab- correct? Absolutely. Like uh, putting it sort of bluntly, uh, no priest, then no, no, no Eucharist, and, yeah. and that's the challenge. And you know, people, people sometimes get a little bit annoyed about the starkness of that. But um, you know, as a community, generally speaking, we're not producing uh, priests. Therefore, a, a direct a direct result of that will be less less mass. Uh, and I suppose because we know, say, across uh, the the water in the UK, the tradition now is that you don't have a funeral for a number of weeks after uh, somebody passes. That could we yeah. be facing into yeah. a similar situation here, just from the want of a priest to do the to do the the funeral. You see, already, I mean, like, for example, and again, coming back to the Dublin Diocese, the, the sort of the direction or the encouragement from, from the Archbishop and so on would be that we set up our parish, that one priest can cover it. You know, in other words, like, I have two churches, but not to have the masses on at the same time. And 
to allow, and I'm, I'm a bit spoiled here in that I have three fantastic Nigerian priests helping me, but around the country, a priest is finding himself not only on his own in the parish, he may actually be, be trying to cover two or three different churches. And uh, when it comes to the funeral, again, you know, I'm, this isn't a criticism, Katie. People have the expectation because there was a time when we had more than enough priests here in the country mm-hmm. and the expectation was a quick turnaround in terms of a funeral. You know, family would expect if a loved one died today, Monday, that they'll have the funeral on Wednesday, you know. Um, Is that not the case anymore? I, no, well, it's not the case because it just doesn't It just doesn't work in the sense the priest is not always available. Sometimes your, your family are trying to bring in a friend then, a priest who's a, a friend and trying to get somebody in there. I mean, I think it's starting to bite, Katie. I mean, what, what the ACP are really flagging is to try and get us ready to, to warn people, look, the, the expectation of the church of yesteryear, if you like, is gone. And, and um, like, where it's hitting things at the moment, Katie, would be, um, you know, say the priest going to the house the night before or, or maybe the priest going to the, the house on the morning of the funeral. It tends more and more now, uh, by the way, including burial or, or cremation, um, that we would be sending maybe the deacon or possibly what we're developing as a funeral ministry team. This is lay people, not ordained deacons or ordained priests. And um, you'd be asking them to, to move in more to doing the, the prayers at the, side, at, the, at, the, at the graveside or in the crematorium. And, and can a, could a lay person, just as good as a priest, do that job, basically. There's nothing special about being ordained. To oh no! To be in terms, in that. terms of the no, no. In, in terms of the prayers at, at the graveside or, or the or the short prayers in the crematorium and so on, there's nothing to stop. It, I mean, a family member could do them. Now, that's probably not a great idea. That the family member tends to be quite, needless to say, emotionally, you know, involved and and so on. But you could get that. So no, there's no bar at all to are, that. Are we moving? Um, are we moving towards Protestantism? Joe, because wasn't that the, the that's one of the key the key uh, things separating the the Catholic uh, practices from the Protestant practices is that you d- would need to be ordained. You had to have the priest there to do the services. Yeah, well, I mean, look, even already, Katie, for example, like the majority of listeners into the programme today will remember, for example, attending a confirmation ceremony. Confirmation ceremony traditionally was done by a bishop and was full mass and could go on a very, very very long time. I remember, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but most do, but, you know, that's... I hope nobody hears that as a swipe at the poor bishop, but it's not. I mean, it's just sheer size of it. And it was also more or less accepted that the sacrament of confirmation would be administered during a celebration of the Eucharist. That's no longer the case. I mean, I, we, we have been doing confirmations here in the parish. We've been delegated by the by the archbishop to do our own confirmations. And so the oh, local really? parish... Oh, really? So you don't, you don't need yeah. the bishop anymore for the confirmation? We don't. No, no, we don't need the bishop. And... and um, and, and secondly, um, so that we, means, we oh, sorry, Father Joseph, we won't have the family snap with the bishop in front of the church that oh, that so many of us have. The, the, the only snap that they have now is with just an ordinary, humble parish priest. You know. <laughs> if, if you can find one of them, you know. And, uh, but no, but the thing about that is, it's also not mass. 
So, so, so the point is, the sacrament of confirmation doesn't need mass. It stands alone as one of the seven sacraments. As does, by the way, wedding ceremonies. We're having more and more weddings now without mass. And, and then people I- mistakenly go out and say, oh, Father just gave him a blessing. He didn't. He didn't. He celebrated the sacrament of marriage but he didn't celebrate Mass as well. Can I suggest to you, uh, Father Joe, that maybe a lot of people mightn't miss the Mass part of the wedding ceremony? I'm totally <laughs> shocked that he would suggest that, Katie. And I, and I disassociate myself. <laughs> no, no, of course, of course. Listen, I've done a lot of weddings recently. It wasn't Mass. I think the beauty of it, you know, look, Mass remains for us, and, and I'm clear, it is the ultimate prayer. But for people, particularly people who are not regular, regular mass goers and so on, what happens now on a, on a wedding ceremony, the focus is very much on the couple and the couple expressing their vows for one another. And that's where the focus should be. And interestingly enough, technically, it, it's better to say not so much Father Joe married them, but rather, you know, uh, Peter and Susan married each other. And Father Joe was there to administer the sacrament and also as witness, um, you know, in, in terms of church and state. So it's, it's, a, it's a changing world, Katie, and um, maybe the, the positive side is greater, greater involvement in lay people. Um, you know, your comment about Protestantism, I'm more inclined to see that we're eventually now, sadly, through force, rather than choice to a lot of degree, we're gradually getting around to accepting the, the wonderful reforms of Vatican II, uh, what, 50, 60 years later. Yeah. Will, you, will you hang on there, Father Joe? I've got uh, Louise, sure. Louise on the other line. Uh, Louise, okay. good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Katie. How are you? I'm good. You're a humanist celebrant. Yes, I'm a celebrant with the Humanist Association of Ireland. So... Uh, um, as Father Joe just said, we do the hatch match dispatch as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a relatively recent that you were legally, uh, you got the legal right to actually marry people. That, that's only goes back, what, 10 years or something? 10 years, yes. Yeah, 10 years. Uh, but they're becoming very, very popular. I just did three week, three weddings myself this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> so three and, very three and one weekend. And <laughs> are they that? I mean, I, I would say that Father Joe and his colleagues still have the edge there because they have the good venues. <laughs> yeah, there's lots more venues opening up, though. Um, we have a lovely consecrated chapel here, actually, in Nace, an old convent uh, that I've done some, some weddings in as well. So there's lots of choice, lots more choice. Do you, so do you think that, you know, as Father Joe describing it there, I mean, I think perhaps for weddings, a lot of people are considering humanist celebrations now. For funerals, though, I think particularly maybe still because of the age, the age profile of a lot of people that are being dispatched, if we're going to use that word, that they still like to go to, and, you know, to have a priest there and to be in the church for, for the last rites, for the last, not the last rites, but the, the, the funeral mass. Yeah, and that's the great thing about it. You know, the people who don't necessarily want the religious service, there's actually a lot more choice for them now. Um, We're quite busy with funerals. I've, I've I've done several of them myself, and they've all been very different because with the humanist ceremony, it's entirely up to the family or maybe the deceased will have left their wishes. So the, the ceremonies have a lot more um, choice in what you actually include which I think is is what a lot of people are looking for. Ultimately, what they are is a celebration of the person's life and the legacy that they've left behind. 
I would just, uh, Father Joe, if you're listening to Louise there, uh, would you like, would you be concerned that this is, you know, this is the trend, basically, that people are moving away totally, not just because there isn't a priest available to say a mass, but that they're not, you know, they're more interested in the type of celebration of a life that uh, you might find from a humanist celebrant than the traditional Catholic one? um, Well, no, I I think, I think the the thing is, and, and, and I think Louise has has put her finger on it. Like, uh, what I would imagine, uh, and I would, uh, you know, I'm sure Louise can can come in on this, I I would feel that what Louise and I have in common is that we want to to, uh, provide a celebration that gives the person the honour and dignity they deserve. And, and, um, you know, and as as Louise says, mindful of family's wishes and so on. Now, Louise... you said that you know about the celebration that would be part of what we would do but obviously from our perspective from a faith perspective i would often say that for us the, the key ingredients are the sorrow of uh, the loss the, the actual grief the sadness and secondly giving thanks for the person's life all that they are you know and have been and continue to be and in a sense that's happening to what louise was saying i think the third element for us is commending them into god's mercy that that we are what we'd be bringing into it as a clear focus is the promise of Jesus is that death is not the end. I, I think for faith, for faith, people who have faith or who, who want to hang on to something, and, you know, not everybody's blessed with faith blazing like a fire at Halloween. For many, faith is a flickering, a flickering candle. But I think it'll level out somewhere. I, I think, you know, there's space, of course, in what, what Louise is providing, many people will opt for. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's a, also a little reminder to us, to boys like me, um, to, to to think about what what do we put into that celebration? You know, what do we? Because in the sense there's competition, and I mean it's it's in one sense competition is always a good thing if it if it gets us to to think about our own um, what we provide. But they are different, and I think they'll remain different. But but that people would have a choice. In, in, in an island that is increasingly, you know, cosmopolitan and, and, and uh, so on, then the choice is going to be there for people. Yeah, and maybe people yeah. are liking the idea as well that they can have a woman uh, doing the ceremony, uh, Joe. Do you think that that, I mean, obviously the issue of, of uh, female uh, priests is... <laughs> is an, a, an ongoing one uh, for the Catholic Church. Do you think there's in your lifetime going to be any shift in that? Well, well, you know, and that's a big, it's a big topic. I mean, it's one of the, if you like, the hot button topics in the Synod in Rome at the moment. And Francis continues, even in his, probably his twilight years, can, continues to be um, courageous and challenging and so on. Um, but, you know, it, as, as you say, in my lifetime, oh, I, I I would hope that there'd be all sorts of, of reforms and renewals in the church. The synod has given us has given us great hope. Um, the, the reality is that you look people people um, as you say. I, I mean, I, I would say if, if Louise was celebrating in Selbridge tomorrow, they might be looking for her again the following week and say, "Leave Joe 
off for a while and Louise is a breath, a breath of fresh air. But um, I just think I just think that, that those things, I, I'm not disputing the, the issue, Katie, but at the core of what we're talking about in terms of the funeral is a broken-hearted family who want to do their best for their loved one and how best we can facilitate that, whether it be in the humanist context or in a safe context, which, which we are committed to, I think it's good that people are able to engage with that. And when you see a family, I'm sure Louise sees this, when you see a family engaging actively in picking readings and picking music, et cetera, et cetera, then you see they see this as their last opportunity as a labor of love to do something um, you know, for their beloved mom that they've just lost. Um, yeah, th- absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Louise. Uh, I've got Mihal who uh, does think we should be thinking about women uh, in the priesthood. Mihal, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Katie. I cannot understand at all, and I can't comprehend why women are not allowed to be priests. What about a woman who is a vocation to the priesthood? The Catholic Church doesn't cater for that um, vocation, and. I would imagine that a vocation to the priesthood, a woman's vocation to the priesthood, is as equally important as a man's vocation to the priesthood. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, he had only one simple criteria as to who could be his disciple. And he said it quite clearly, by this shall it be known that you are my disciple if you have love one for another. And does anybody love better than women? No way. And think of the caring that they would bring into the church, that they would bring to the masses on a Sunday, that they would bring into the confessional, that they would bring to the various services that are held in in the Catholic Church. I I cannot understand at all why priests, uh, women are not priests. Yeah, indeed. Well, I think Father Joe was saying it is. It's one that uh, that is a perennial uh, chestnut uh, for the thing. I want to bring in John as well. John, you think there's another category that we should be thinking about? Do uh, I have John? First of all, I, hello, yes. Yes, John. Hello. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I would like, first of all, to extend my sympathies to all those people that were killed in the weekend out in the Middle East and to, to um, express our love and understanding for all those people who are suffering and unnecessarily but that's life it's all over the world today (laughs) now I am first of all a Christian, a Catholic and I've been a member of my committees in the parish for many years and uh, I've seen this thing coming with quite some time and I did have a sister living in Cheshire and I saw that they were in a far worse situation there than we were here then. Now, it was a coincidence, actually, I was in West Cork the other day, and I met uh, Senator Tim Lumbert, and we were talking about West Cork and parishes and lack of priests and all that. And I said to him, you should start a campaign of encouraging the idea of having priests married priests or lady becoming priests. I can't see why a lady couldn't operate as a man uh, in her capacity as a priest. 
We saw in many other walks of life, in the legal business, in the medical field, in all other areas of life, women have become more and more integrated and they have proved they're equally as good as any man. And I am convinced that they would make excellent priests. Okay. Now, we all grew up with the, I suppose, security of having priests in our parish. Now, we have one very good priest here for Finbar. And we are also fortunate in the sense that there's a Rosminian uh, order here in Upton. And there are two Indian priests who support and help now and again. Now, about 15 years ago, we renovated two churches in our parish, two beautiful churches. We now have the situation where the priest is expected to give the same service and provide the same facilities for this and that. It's not uh, humanly possible. The visitations to the schools, on the committees, and uh, visiting people's homes after bereavement or times of bereavement. A lady can do that just as well. And I couldn't see certain married men in our parish being excellent priests. And I think... In a situation where you have reality facing you that you may not have a priest in your parish in the next five years, why not? Why not look at that and ask people uh, to become involved in their church and administer? Now, if we have a problem with concentrate. Okay, John, I'm going to. John, John, I, I have your point. I've just have so many people lining up and I'm watching my clock here, but I have your point. Married, married men would make excellent priests and, and women uh, should be considered. Uh, but thank you for that, John. Appreciate it. Uh, I want to bring in Pauline. Pauline, good afternoon. Yes. Hi. Um, it's just points I wanted to say in relation to the ministers and that. Um, I'm from the Diocese of Killaloo and I know that there are a number of ministers, both lay and female, that are commissioned to work within the diocese. Um, I know they were training for about four years prior to them being commissioned. Now, I don't know what areas of work they're actually working in. Yeah, I think these are, Pauline, these are probably the lay deacons. Am I right, Father Joe, the lay deacons that you were talking about, the train train to be able to do these services? Well, well Pauline, we don't have female uh, deacons. I think Pauline's referring to a growing number of lay people, men and women, who are, yes. who are trained funeral ministries. And, and um, you know, they're, they're people who are increasingly involved in the bereavement process, whether it's visiting the house, whether it's working with family to prepare the funeral, whether it's going to the cemetery or whatever. I think Pauline's referring to, and even her word, they, they have been commissioned after a period of training. They've been commissioned by the, the local bishop, and, and then they proceed to work within the area of funeral ministry. And is this all done, uh, Pauline? Is this a voluntary uh, thing to do? Is, you're not... Yes, yes, yes. As far, yes, I think it was a... Com- now, I really didn't know enough about it, but my understanding was it would be 
where people would volunteer to do this and they would go through a whole process of learning. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised, yeah, and, but you're saying so you can, that's one way that women can actually be very involved in the parish, but yes. but you it, can't as Father Joe. Yeah, whereas the deacon, you, 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 we still have only male deacons. That's the, that's. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, which I, I personally, it's a personal opinion. I cannot see why you cannot have a female deacon. I really don't want to get in, in and out to the ends of this. It isn't that I'm sitting here kind of saying, oh yeah, all female priests and that. Um, I don't want to get into that end of it. I just want to, to let people know. I don't know a lot of people within the diocese of Killaloo uh, would know this it, um, about the, the ministers. Uh-huh. And I'd love to know myself, you know, where they are now at this stage, because I remember I attended the commissioning service, and it was really nice. And I know there were appointed um, as well to work in different areas of work. Okay. So. Okay. Okay, thanks for that, Pauline. Okay. It, looks like, it sounds like that's going to be the future uh, for a lot of parishes. Uh, I have to take another break. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And can I bring in Martina now? Martina, good afternoon. Hi, Katie. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, so you also can hatch, match and dispatch. <laughs> uh, you're a civil ce- celebrant, Martina. I'm a civil celebrant trained by the Irish Institute of Celebrants. Um, so I did the wedding um, celebrant first and then I decided I could see that there was such a shortage of priests and things like that. So I could see there was an opening for um, to do the funeral celebrant. So I went off and I did that course. So um, I've just, you know, I've just qualified a couple of months ago. So I'm just trying to set up my business now. It's quite slow. I'm in Tipperary, so it's quite slow down the country. It hasn't really taken off. But I believe in Dublin it's really taken off. And do you think people are still uh, down the country, as you say, attached to the idea of all of these big moments happening in churches? Yeah, I think there is still a bit. But it's it's no different than Dublin, where we're very short of priests. Um down the country now so I, you know I it, speaking to the undertakers local and that they all feel that it is going this way that they have no other, other choice about it um, because there is such a shortage of priests that even if it's only for somebody to do the prayers in the house or or at the uh, funeral uh, funeral uh, parlour or you know um, to do the prayers in the, in the in the graveyard or even you know some people obviously go for cremation so they'd like to have somebody that they know going with them to, for it, cremation. Is there any so. issue with the likes of yourself being uh, having the authority to go into a graveyard if it's attached to a church, say? No, I don't think so. I think um, because an awful lot of the graveyards now have been taken over by the county councils and things. So they're run by the county councils. So I, don't, I think it's really up to people's personal choice. It's just that obviously, well, now some people, um, you know, really will always stick with the church and things like that. But you could also be a little bit religious, but you mightn't be a churchgoer. 
so it's an option for people like that. Um, you know, and as I said, I'm a civil celebrant, so I will do religion or non-religion. It's oh, you, you will know, you will do religion as well if I if I want yeah, prayers, yeah, traditional see, prayers. That's the difference between humanist and um, civil. It's just that the humanist won't do religion, whereas a civil celebrant will do religion if if it's required. So yeah, so the only thing you wouldn't have is, I suppose, the mass, but. You know, otherwise you could have the same prayers, you could have the same hymns, uh, whatever you want. You know, it would be up to the family. Would you feel comfortable doing, you know, all of those funeral, like we'd all associate with a funeral mass without the mass bit? Would you be comfortable doing that instead of a prayer? Well, I I would because I I have done the training now and I'm trained to do that. But also... um, I have worked with um, uh, um, the older generation for uh, most of my career, so I'm used to um, dealing with older people and things like that. But as I said, it's I think myself that the older generation is going to stick for um, uh, with you priest. know going to the church and things mm-hmm. like that. But I think it's people of my own generation that are sixty, maybe you know that age. They're changing slowly, changing. You know, yeah. so they're yeah. looking for options. Yeah, I think there will be a lot of changes yeah. as as we were saying at the top of this item. Uh, within the decade, uh, we won't be able to recognise the way we were doing things. Um, but that's all we have time for today. Martina, many thanks for that. Father Joe, many thanks. Um, today's programme on sound, we had Tommy O'Sullivan, our broadcast coordinator was Shane Galvin and today's programme was produced by Tara Lockery-Grant. Stand by now for Ray Ope and tune in tonight uh, to Upfront at 10.35. 0818-715-815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie